and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valley Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. This episode is brought to you by FMC. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient flutriafol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Listeners, welcome back to the podcast this week. Uh, we are really excited to kick it off with a good friend of mine um, whom I met through FFA, like so many of our guests. <laughs> um, and he is a gentleman who inspires greater thinking, thinking on a different plane. Um, and so I thought he was the perfect uh, guest to kick off what we hope to be a series around regenerative agriculture. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Matt Craighead, who, like I said, is a good friend of mine, um, is an ag teacher in Tennessee. And Matt, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Um, so like you said, my name is Matthew Craighead. Uh, I grew up in northern middle Tennessee, a little town community called Salina. And um, so basically I grew up around cattle farming. Uh, we didn't have cattle until I was in high school. And uh, after my grandfather passed away and then my father kind of inherited his farm and we started cattle farming. Um, I've been around it my whole life, but I've never been directly involved with the day-to-day -day farming decisions up until that point. Um, so through my grandfather and um, just being around agriculture, I developed a deep interest for agriculture, and that led to me being active in FFA, which uh, I got very involved in and ended up getting to go on some great trips and meet people like you, Catherine. Uh, so, <laughs> it's a great, great organization for that. Left home, went to college, uh, got a degree in ag engineering technology, um, had a great three-year experience at Tennessee Tech, learned a lot about agriculture, and then had the opportunity to come back home and work for our local soil conservation district. Uh, so me and my wife moved back home and actually had the opportunity to buy my grandfather's uh, house and move back to the family farm. And I worked with soil conservation for eight years. And through that is what really got me interested in and involved in what we now call county regenerative agriculture. Um, and then two years ago, I got the opportunity to actually go back to my home school and become the agriculture teacher there along with my wife Amanda and so we're both agriculture teachers at Salina High School and so that's been a great experience. How wonderful and Matt thank you again so much for joining us. Let's to just kind of dive into the conversation. What's your definition of regenerative ag? It gets thrown around quite a bit um, and I feel like similar to sustainability that was a hot topic a few years ago everybody has their own definition or idea of what it means for them and their operation but just generally what is regenerative ag to you so it, regenerative agriculture like Catherine said we talked about it several years ago and that's when you kind of first started hearing the term regenerative agriculture and, and in a lot of ways it has become a buzzword just like organic or sustainable or any of those other labels that you're seeing popping up in the supermarket but the basis of 
all of those labels really. I mean, if you look at organic, if you look at regenerative agriculture, if you even look at just general sustainability, is it is basically an attempt to switch to systems-based thinking. Um, so in the last hundred years in agriculture, I think we've done a really good job at figuring out piece by piece what works and what doesn't in the connection between agriculture and the natural ecosystem. Um, and so I think as science is involved and as our knowledge of these systems have evolved, you started seeing these different buzzwords and these different people with these ideas coming out that if you really boil it down to the core of it, it's systems thinking. So it's basically looking at an agriculture system as a whole and how it interacts with those other systems around it, like the ecology of mother nature and what's going on in the land or the system of whatever the local market and community is. Um, so, so that would be my, my take on regenerative agriculture is it's systems-based thinking or that it takes a step back and tries to look at everything like, as a whole. Um, Alan Savory has done a lot of work with holistic management and that's kind of the, the driving basis behind it is removing yourself to a far enough view that you get a full idea of the system and the impact that it is having. Um, now, if you look at some of the more definitive definitions, it's an oxymoron, of regenerative agriculture, it starts looking more at um, how you can change an agricultural operation from one that consumes to one that produces. And I know that, you know, we're all involved in agriculture here. And so our first thing to think is, you know, well, all agriculture systems produce. And, and that's true to a point, but there's a threshold in there where that it takes more inputs, whether they be monetary, whether they be natural resource based, um, whether it be whatever that the agriculture system consumes, there's a threshold point there where that it will consume more than what it can actually produce. So the idea of a regenerative agriculture is kind of getting us back to that true production from the land with minimal inputs. So do you think that American agriculture as a whole right now is largely regenerative in, in operation or, or whatever the opposite of that might be, more of a consumer consuming type operation? I guess I should back up and say, while I have, I've been around agriculture my entire life, I've been around, uh, lots of different farming operations. So with uh, my tenure with soil conservation, I actually got to write conservation plans and be on over 200 different individual farms. So I got to see a lot of what goes on in our very small community of Clay County. And um, due to a variety of reasons, you know, we have a specific type of agriculture that takes place here. And there is a very broad range in that. And to say whether one farm is truly regenerative or not, I don't know that I really have the expertise to say that. And from what I've seen, we're just now kindly on the edge of getting the scientific knowledge to really understand um, if a farm is truly regenerating. And the other thing you have to look at is what kind of measuring stick that you're using. Um, because if you're just using bushels per acre as your measuring stick and not looking at the inputs, then, you know, there's lots of farms that can produce a tremendous amount of corn or soybeans per acre. 
Um, on the flip side, if you look at something like carbon sequestration that's going on on the farm, that's where the waters get a whole lot murkier right now. Because we're starting to understand that we can use stuff like integrating livestock into cropping systems. We can add biodiversity to a system. Um, we can cut down on inputs. There's a lot of things we can do. And at some point, we will start sequestering carbon, which through some very complicated processes can be a building block for regenerative agriculture. But we're kindly on the forefront of figuring out just how that carbon sequestration works, how it interacts with the microbes in the soil and the living life that's in the soil, and how long it's going to stay in the soil. So I guess one of my questions is, is we've, you know, you talk about the measuring stick and, and the how that changes or how we're figuring out how to even measure regeneration. What, I guess, what, what are consumers wanting or have you seen a demand with some of the regenerate regenerative ag from consumers or what, what's driving producers to want to be more regenerative? From what that I have seen, and the producers that I've worked with that are either implementing regenerative agriculture or interested in regenerative agriculture, they are coming at it from a far different direction than a lot of the traditional agriculture people that I have worked with. So the traditional agriculture people that I have worked with in the past are very market driven. So they are going to produce whatever that the market today is going to bring at the top dollar. So if you take the cattle industry in our area, black cattle brings the most in at the current market. And so that's what everybody has naturally gravitated to in the last 20 or 30 years is primarily black Angus-based cattle. You know, it's a market decision. Uh, most people around here are selling their cattle at a weight of 600 pounds on average, just as a, a steer that is either directly off of just directly weaned off the mother cow or backgrounded for maybe two or four weeks. You know, that's the majority of the sales we have here just because that's kind of what the market is looking for. So kind of your traditional agriculture people, and they're driven by a very short-term market that they can capitalize on. And I'm not saying that's wrong because, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to make, you know, especially if you're making your entire living off the farm, you know, you've got to make your living, you got to support your family. Um, most of the regenerative agriculture people that I've worked with, they are driven by not the market today, but what they envision is going to be the market for their grandchildren. So what they are looking for is a product that they think is going to be the most successful for their grandchildren. And it's a very long-term way of thinking. Um, and it's, it took me and I still, every day, it's hard for me to wrap my head around, you know, something that I can do very quickly and easily today could have a ripple effect that, you know, my daughter could see in 30 or 40 years on this farm. And so the people I've seen that start thinking like that, um, I mean, obviously, you know, the one of their considerations is the desire to make a profit off of the farm but they are taking a more long-term view and they are starting to redefine what profit really is. And from that, I believe that there is a consumer base that is developing. 
and and a lot of it i think boils back down to and this is probably a controversial topic but food is cheap in america mm-hmm. um, i mean we spend you know very little of our disposable income on food and i mean that has many different ramifications across the system I mean, in an ideal world, that would be great because that means everybody gets to eat cheaper. But, you know, how many farmers go bankrupt every year that you know of? You know, and that, you know, that's the end result. We sell food and cheap food means that there's not a lot of room left for those that are growing it. It is a controversial topic, but we like to bring those up on this podcast. So bring it on. (laughs) Um. Do you think what you're talking about um, really long-term views and preparing or operating with several generations down the line in mind? Um, what would you say to to a fifth generation row crop farmer on the plains who um, gets their tail feathers in a bunch because they think that, they are regenerative ag and this newfangled term is just causing all kinds of grief and they've been doing it this way since as long as they can remember. So I guess the first thing I'd say is I don't know that so I'm not super familiar with like plains-based agriculture with agriculture on the west coast Um, you know I'm familiar with agriculture that goes on here in Tennessee And I know what I see here. And that ingrained the way that we have already always done it type thinking permeates this area too. Um, I mean, that's the way daddy did it. That's the way granddaddy did it is a lot of the reason why that things go on, you know, on operation today. And I think a lot of it boils back down to, um, so number one, the farmer themselves has to be open to taking whatever step forward they think is going to be the best for their operation. And, you know, I I don't necessarily think I am qualified to say what that is, but I do know that we have a tremendous body of knowledge out there today that gives us a lot more opportunities to make better decisions than those before us. And I mean, you start looking at stuff like just simple soil erosion. Um, I mean, so that was a very, been a very hot topic for years is, you know, you go back to the Dust Bowl and that started driving soil conservation. And, you know, you fast forward and we started developing chemicals and the technology to start implementing uh, no-till agriculture. And to a large part, I mean, we solved the soil erosion problem. If you look at just that one little sliver, that one little component. Um, and, and, you know, in the 90, late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, we kind of said, you know, we've got the soil erosion problem on a row crop operation pretty well figured out. We fast forward 20 years and you start looking at, you know, we've developed these herbicide resistances that has led to people going back and implementing tillage. Okay, so... You know, we, we picked out a very small sliver of that uh, overall system, focused heavily on it, and said, you know, we solved this problem. But systems thinking and Mother Nature just led to, okay, we solved one problem, another one's going to come up. Um, so, 
you know, you just got to look at the cycle of things and what's going on on your operation today and what you want your operation to look like 100 years from now. Um, and the biggest thing that I've seen is, and in my, so I've worked a lot primarily with cattle operations and getting people to start thinking long-term can be a challenge, but it's kind of like a, a switch getting flipped. I mean, once people um, studied it and come to their own realizations of what they wanted out of their operation, they become very ready to learn more about how to improve their operation. Um, I, I've seen that many times. I mean, I'd, I'd go into an operation and they're thinking very day to day. And I think a lot of it just stems from the daily overwhelm. I mean, you know, we're all just doing the best we can just to make it through today, much less try to think, you know, how this is going to impact our grandchildren and having somebody else there to help them just kind of step back and take a minute and look at what's going on and what we can do to improve it. And a lot of times, you know, it's not a drastic change or anything, you know, earth shattering or anything like that. Um, you know, it's just simple management practices that are implemented over time. And along with that long-term thinking, a lot of times it's hard to see a short-term gain, but long-term, you know, if you can stay with somebody long enough or they stay with that plan long enough, it really starts coming back to them. I mean, I look at my father's operation. He has a river bottom farm that was very heavy, heavily tilled through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and then it had cattle run on it by renter up until about 2006, whenever that he started cattle farming on it. And when he started, I mean, the primary crop on it was iron weeds and the nutrient availability was low in pretty much every category. And uh, he went in and cross-fenced it, uh, started rotating cattle. Uh, he added fertility to the soil in a variety of ways. He added chemical fertility. He added uh, poultry manure as fertility. Uh, he went in and worked on some of his forage stands and worked on improving those. And, you know, that was 14 years ago. And today you go out there and he has a system of rotation in place on a very good established perennial forage system that is high in fertility and he has reduced his fertilization down to about every two to three years and normally that's just on hay ground and uh, his weeds are pretty much under control I mean it don't look like a golf course but um, I mean they're not being detrimental to the perennials that are out there you know he's created a system but that didn't happen overnight I mean, that was, took 14 years of, you know, a lot of hard work. And it would have been very easy to have took a step back and let that system revert back to cattle, you know, being on the entire farm, adding chemical fertilizer only, um, you know, just a very day-to-day -day management instead of a long-term systems management. So you're talking heavily... Sorry, Catherine. <laughs> um, on a lot of the soil and the vegetation aspect of regenerative ag, is there another component? You know, you have to also balance the financial aspect of it. And where do you eventually see that return on investment of, you know, 
taking care of the land and maybe keeping a couple calf crops or cutting the calf crops or whatever? How do you balance the financial aspect of some of that regenerative practices you're talking about? So, you know, I'll take my father's farm, for instance, just because he's a little bit further along the road of progression than I am. Um, I mean, you ask, you know, a cattle farm around here, what's their probably three biggest expenses? And they're going to say chemical fertilizer, um, hay or feed is going to be number one, chemical fertilizer is going to be number two, and um, uh, pest management, weed control is going to be number three. Um, you take his operation today, he started, he fed hay, started feeding hay about two weeks ago. Um, and most of the other people in the county probably started a month earlier than that. Uh, so he gained an extra month of grazing perennial forages. So he cut a month out of his feed bill. Um, you know, his pest management is virtually nothing i mean just a few dollars a year because he doesn't do broadcast sprays or anything like that uh, he'll do some spot spray management on fence rows and some stuff like that um you take his chemical fertilizer bill uh he's got it down to where that you know this year he may put some nitrogen on some hay ground but that's going to be it so he's raising the same number of calves as he was 10 years ago but he's cut his input costs drastically compared to what he started with. Um, and, and I mean, he's got a system where that he's cycling nutrients now. So this is going to be a, you know, I feel like it's going to be a pretty long-term return on that nutrient management. Um, I mean, you know, it's a, it's kind of a closed system. So he grazes cattle and sells calves. Uh, he'll harvest a hay crop maybe once a year off of a portion of the farm. And that is actually returned, normally returned back to the farm because it's fed in, you know, a similar location of where it was harvested from. So, you know, he got his fertility up. Now he's just cycling those uh, nutrients through the soil. You know, he's added stuff like clovers in. So, you know, he's building nitrogen every year. Um, if you look at some of the research they're doing now on how that these perennial systems are, there's a symbiotic relationship between mycorrhizal fungi and most plants that results in some nutrient exchange. So those mycorrhizal fungi can actually mine nutrients from further down than what the plants can reach. Um, so they're actually releasing nutrients that otherwise would not be available. So, I mean, that's another source of nutrients in that. Um, you know, just, you know, things like that, you know, he's starting to see the return on. Listeners, we're going to pause here for a second to hear a word from our sponsor. It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented season-long inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Matt, you've given us some great uh, definitions about regenerative agriculture and what um, what the term actually means, especially um, to your little corner of Tennessee. I'm curious, do you think that, um, that regenerative agriculture lends itself more to certain geographic areas? Um, 
I, I, I asked this specifically with my family's operation in mind, uh, in mind, um, you know, we dairy in the desert. Uh, there's no grazing for our cows. Um, you know, it's, it's very much a closed system and, uh, you know, we're making milk in the desert, which isn't really a natural phenomenon. So I feel like that, I mean, regenerative practices can be implemented at about any level at about any location. I mean, I don't think they're defined to any one locale. I mean, if you look at Alan Savory's work on holistic management, which is basically regenerative agriculture, um, I mean, he has worked in desert areas where they have literally turned it around into grazing type operations um, using basically regenerative practices. Um, so, I mean, you know, that, you know, it can be done in the desert. Um, really, if you look at it, so Alan Savory talks about how brittle that an environment is. And that's basically just how sensitive it is to disruption and how long it takes to recover from a disruption. So the environment that I farm in is not very brittle. I mean, if I screw something up this year, I can probably fix it by next year. You know, it might cost me some money. You know, if I kill a stand of grass, I can reseed it and have grass next year. Okay, if you take like the desert area that you're in, it's a very brittle environment because, you know, if you screw something up and kill something there, you know, it may be years before it can be reestablished. Um, and so the more brittle the environment is, the more important these regenerative practices are and the more important it becomes to save and sustain what we already have there. Um, now, I'm not super familiar with the desert, and I'm not super familiar with dairy and, and dairy operations. Um, so, you know, I can't, I, I've not got the knowledge to sit here today and say these are specific practices that you can put in place on your farm. But I'd be willing to bet that you and your family is knowledgeable enough about the dairy in your location that if you really applied systems-based thinking and looked hard at regenerative practices, you could come up with some stuff that you could do that you're gonna see benefits from in the future. So I guess from like, we're talking about dairy, so I'm gonna bring in confined animal feeding operations in general. And I come from the beef, sector of things, the cow calf. Um, and I work for a lot of dairies and feedlots, but you know, the one thing, you know, I look at a lot is the nutrient management side of, of those operations and how beneficial that can be for the soil, but in reverse too much of a good thing is not a good thing anymore. <laughs> and so how do we, how would you recommend somebody in that environment, um, you know, sometimes we get put in a corner, we've got development pushing up against us. How do we continue to find those practices or what do those practices look like to continue to sustain the feedlot, the poultry, the dairy industry for, for the next generation? How can we start looking out further for those operations? Um, I, I mean, that's a tough question. Uh, I think that when it comes to the feedlots, stuff we are really pushing the edge of what we're capable of doing with animals and 
So I know, I know that I know cafes are a very hot topic right now and a very sensitive subject. I mean, there's people that are really, really for them. There's people that are really, really against them. Um, and, and I'm going to try to speak very broadly and not to any one specific sector of that because I understand both the that today, you know, there's lots of operations that makes their living off of the CAFO and we've got to feed today's population with the technology and the things we have in place now. And that currently is CAFOs for the most part. Um, on the flip side of it, I mean, we're pushing the bounds of what we can do sustainably with an operation like that. And I think that comes in multiple different ways. You have just the nutrient management side of it, like that you're talking about. And I mean, there's places, so around here, you know, we have chicken houses, poultry houses is our primary uh, CAFO operation. Um, I got lots of good friends that makes their living off of those operations. And we've got the land base to uh, comfortably deal with that waste and that manure that they produce. Um, actually, since the poultry industry has come in and the dairy industry has went out, we've seen a water quality improvement on a couple of the streams that had been flagged before for water quality problems. So we added 100. And, uh, so there's one stream that we added in basically, I think at last count, it was like 50 or 60 poultry operations in that one watershed. And they've been able to manage that manure output and it not end up in the stream, not end up as runoff. Um, so, you know, that's positive and we can do that. But the question I asked the flip side of it is, are we taking the resilience out of our agriculture systems? And, and the one that I have really thought hard about here lately is uh, there's a poultry operation I know of. Uh, they suffered a fire in their, um, on their operation and they managed to sustain through that fire and then several days later they ended up losing a house of birds because um, another generator failed and they was literally working on the same poultry operation like they was in a different uh, poultry house on that operation so I mean the the hard one for me to the, the question I ask is you know, we've took it down to where the resiliency of some of these operations are literally is literally minutes. I mean, if they go just minutes without some form of human intervention, you know, electricity, fans running, things like that, I mean, they can look at a total loss. And so is that resilient enough to make it through to the next future generation? And I'm not saying whether it is or not, because I've not got that answer, but that's a question that concerns me because you have that level of pushing the boundaries of what we're capable of doing. Now they're making production out of that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, they're producing 24,000 birds in a chicken house, 10 pounds of bird at 2.4 million pounds of chicken or is that 240,000? It's too late for me to be doing this kind of math. <laughs> um, they're, you know, they're producing a tremendous amount of meat out of that operation. You know, so that's good. But you know, I have another friend who put in one of the free range poultry operations and, um, you know, very, it's a very high tech operation. It's a layer operation. They have a 600 foot long, fully automated barn, but I mean, their birds go outside every day if they want to. 
Um, I mean, if they suffer a power failure, for the most part, those birds will be unaffected, um, you know, for, you know, a reasonable amount of time. Um, you know, they've got gravity, they got a gravity-fed water system, so, you know, they can go probably 24 hours without power, you know, relatively easily. So I guess, you know, my question is, I, somewhere in the middle of all that probably lies the answer. And finding that and getting there is going to be the challenge for the future. I think it's sort of a cool call to action for agriculture to think about these kinds of questions. Um, it's way too easy to sweep this sort of big picture thinking under the rug and get caught up in the day to day, like you said. Um, I think that's a really, really important point to drive home. Um, it's really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day and just trying to keep the fires put out. But what happens when there's an actual fire um, and how is that operation gonna sustain for the next, forget the next generation, but the generation after that? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we've the last two years with COVID and a variety of other things that have happened too in our system, we've seen the supply chain hiccups that have been significant to some some industries the beef industry for example you know jbs being shut down a couple of days because of covid or a cyber attack or something like that i think really you know can we operate off the grid which is crazy in today's age um but i think that's a great a great thought that my brain's just running with so thank you matt for bringing that up um on all all levels of this of agriculture and I think that's one of the problems that we're fighting with regenerative agriculture and systems-based thinking is we're so traditionally used to picking out a segment and figuring out an answer for it. And then you move on to the next segment and you figure out an answer for that. And I mean, we can sit and talk all night about regenerative agriculture and never cover the same topic. I mean, you think about just the thousands of little details that goes into just one small operation that has to be taken into effect, into account. Um, I mean, I think that's where that people struggle with both the messaging side and even just defining regenerative agriculture. Because there's not really a definition out there for regenerative agriculture. Uh, it's traced back to, I think, Rodale Institute was one of the first people to actually mention it. They mentioned it back or used the term back in the 60s and then dropped it until the 2000s, and then they kind of jumped back on using that term to kind of define what they're doing. Um, and, and then it's kind of surged in popularity from there. But I, I mean, I don't know that you can even narrow it down to regenerative agriculture. I mean, you look at, you know, traditional farmers, regenerative agriculturalists, organic farmers, sustainable farmers, holistic management farmers, they've all got the same goal their end goal is to take the land that they have and produce something off of it in a manner that will get them through both this year and through the next hundred years. And, and that's just, you know, a large, hard concept to really wrap your head around. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I, this conversation, just like all our conversations, Matt has given me so much food for thought, um, let alone podcast topics. <laughs> and I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and I think just that, that thought um, might be a good place to leave our listeners too. you know, something to chew on 
for them personally, but for their operation and for agriculture as a whole. Um, is there any last words of wisdom you want to leave everybody with? And then where can people find you if they want more information? So uh, you, you say in your intro, you said no stone left unturned. You know, you're not scared to go down any road. So, so that's <laughs> what I would like to do right now. And, okay. Uh, in the nature of regenerative agriculture. All right. So I want each of you to give me just a quick background of where you're at right now with your agriculture operation. Just so I've got a firm grasp before I can take this next question. So let's start with uh, you, Catherine. Um, my family milks 5,000 cows in West Central Utah. Um, all the feed is brought in. Um, we sell our milk to um, a single dairy product processor. Um, no longer have a co-op in our in our picture, and um, have recently been branching out into crop farming for a little bit more vertical integration in our operation. Okay. And then how about you? So it's not cut and dry on our operation. So my, my family's operation, um, I'm fifth generation farmer and rancher. Um, and we, we've now moved the majority of the cow herd to, um, Northern Nevada. They ran year round. We try to limit the amount of hay we need to bring in. Um, and, and it's a, a mitigation ranch with the mine. Um, on the home place, my dad still um, will lease some grass out to some yearlings for grass finished um, niche marketing type markets. And then we usually have a pivot of some kind of row crop, whether it's um, corn or grain, and then some alfalfa. My fiance has a few cows on, or quite a few cows on um, some AUMs there locally and grazes on cover crops. And then he farms um, quite a few acres too in that area of row crop, mostly grain, um, corn, and wheat. So a, kind of a little bit of everything in the farming and ranching world. Okay. And uh, Catherine, your degree in agriculture from college? Dairy science and agricultural leadership. Okay. And Elaine? Uh, civil engineering with a little bit of animal science classes. Okay. Awesome. I like it. Civil engineering. Okay. <laughs> well, nice. All right. So I'm obviously talking with two very well-educated young women that have an exceptional agriculture background and are directly involved with agriculture production on basically hundreds of acres. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. In the last week, out of everything that you have eaten, how much of it did you directly grow from the time it's first emerged out of the ground until it hit your plate? I would say the majority of the beef I eat okay. is that, and I'm getting, we're trying to go through a whole bunch of ground beef, but <laughs> other than that, um, the seasonal crops are, are now gone and a lot of it is subsidized by by what I can purchase at the local grocery store. Okay. 100% uh, of my beef or the beef that I eat um, comes from um, steers that me and my husband raised. Um, but as for 
vegetables and fruits and anything else exciting like peanut (laughs) M&Ms. It all came from the grocery store. Okay. So I'm just going to leave it open-ended at there. What does that mean for agriculture? Yeah, I don't know that there's even an answer to that question. That's the kind of questions I like. Bring <laughs> some points like that. That is a typical Matt question. Leave it open. Lots of food for thought. Yep. <laughs> I think that might be a great place to end. Um, and maybe with a teaser too, Valine and I are going to give that some thought and come back with an episode about it. Um, we will definitely have you back on, Matt. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, any parting words before before we head out i guess the one thing i would say is that if you ever have the opportunity to plant a tree plant a tree because you never know who's going to shade under it um your grandkids might have a swing in that tree someday i think that's beautiful beautiful words of wisdom um and listeners we hope you've taken some food for thought from this episode as well um we'd love to know what you think you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram you can also email us at talk to us at millennialag.com until next week we are millennial ag millennial ag